announcements, right? Get all the good news and sometimes other news and keep us all in line in an order. I can't seem to get this on here this morning. Well, how is everybody after their first full day? Sleeping on those soft, comfy beds with that miracle foam rubber, whatever that is, that returns to its spot and is about that thick, right? We used to do quite a bit of backpacking in Colorado, and uh, your pack weight is very critical, you know, and so you have these little pads, and that was one of the things you took into consideration, and they just make them thinner and shorter and, you know, etc. Pretty soon you hardly feel like you're carrying anything, but... Uh, you really don't feel like you're sleeping on anything. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. Before we read a, a portion there, I just wanted to give just a bit of a review. We're thankful again to be able to be here and to take up some of these words of the Lord Jesus. And I have to give you a warning. There's a red warning label on Scripture every time we come to it. Because we may just fall deeper in love with the Lord when we spend time there. And we may just be a bit more obedient, we trust, and we continue to look for his direction in it. Now, I don't know whether or not you did receive an outline, but we spent a bit of time in Matthew 28 yesterday, looking at this commission that at least was titled here of adoration and of gospel commitment, and spent a bit of time also on the centrality of the person of the Lord Jesus, on the priority of him in our life, the priority of his person, and then the preeminence of his power, that all power has been given unto him in heaven and in earth. You notice it's a gift, don't you? All power has been given. What an order. You know, we find that the Lord Jesus in, in his position, if you can state it that way, in the Godhead, is the one that receives. And as he was here on the earth, he received the words that he spoke and the actions and the works that he did. And even in this case, we read of that tremendous order, that this power has been invested or has been given unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also spent just a bit of time noticing where these disciples went, how they confronted the Lord Jesus, and what their response to the Lord was that it came in two different ways. One was absolute worship, and the second was a, a hesitation, a certain amount of doubt. And it came to my mind this morning, the man Thomas, who we sometimes call Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure that's exactly right. Uh, Thomas was one of these forthright individuals, and he just said what was on his mind, and you might better call him Honest Thomas. But Thomas... You might say doubted for a moment himself, but he gave one of those tremendous statements regarding the Lord that we really don't find any higher in all of Scripture. And when all of his doubts were answered lovingly by the Lord, he says, my Lord and my God, doesn't he? Now, God can't be anything greater than God, but he ought not to be anything less either. And unfortunately, the world around doesn't really see him as that. They don't hold him up to what he ought to be as God. But also, unfortunately, amongst Christendom and in our own lives, we don't hold him up as Lord as we ought to. And we display that by our actions, by the way that we spend our time. And we can fall short in that way too, can we not? 
But Thomas, he comes out and he says, my Lord and my God. And I remember one person at one time saying, my God, that is believing. My Lord, that is bowing. And that's where we desire to be today. When we come before the Lord, we want to say, Lord, whatever it is, we are ready for these commissions, for these charges that you've given unto us. And so we begin a little bit on this third point, the propagation of the plan of the commission of the charge that the Lord gave to us and took note of this fact that he said, go ye into all the world. He has all the power, but he sends us in our weakness. And now let's look at first Corinthians chapter two. And this is kind of a passage that seems to have been in vogue as it were recently, but it's a nice passage for us. And it It hits me at least where I am as an individual and in all of our weakness and my weakness as I read it. Because Paul's going to give us these qualifications for sharing our faith, these qualifications for bearing verbal testimony for the Lord. And he's going to do it from his own perspective, really. And he says in verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I resolved, or I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the whole gospel right there, is it not? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you, said Paul, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, And my speech and my preaching, and I believe that may be speech speaking more so of our private ministry and speaking or preaching of our public ministry, says my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So the Lord has all the power, doesn't he? And it's the one with all the power that's working with us. But we're the ones with all the weakness. And as we just read through that, we notice that if we're going to be good witnesses for the Lord, there are certain qualifications. And the first one is you cannot be eloquent. And the second is you mustn't be wise. And the third is that you must have weakness. And the fourth is you must be fearful. And not only tremble, but what does it say? says, much trembling. Now, I can agree with that, right? We've had that experience before. Much trembling, it says. And we must be hard to listen to, not with enticing words of man's wisdom, it says. And I'm sure that you are like me in this respect, that when sometimes we're called upon or we take advantage of sharing a word for the Lord Jesus, it seems like the words don't always flow like they should. And we look back on the conversation and we say, oh, I wished that I would have thought of this verse because God's word doesn't return void, or if I would have just put it that way instead of this way. But the Lord says, this is the weakness that we're looking for, and this is the humility in which we come, and we find out that he's the one that we have to return to because he has all the wisdom and all the power, but he still calls us to go forth and to bear witness for him. And it ought to be a joy for us to do that. Like Moses, like Gideon, like Jeremiah, like the Apostle Paul here. We have this weakness, 
but the Lord used them and we trust that he can use us as well. And so the practical end of it is that evidently the Lord felt like you are just exactly what he's looking for. When he's looking for witnesses for the glorious gospel, he says, you are just exactly what I'm living for and what I'm looking for. I remember last year, I don't recall the conversation, but Dave and and some of the others were sitting around a table and they were talking about some of the different venues that they've taken advantage of to share the gospel and different ways that they've done it. And different things came out from different people. And, and you realize that the Lord can design a place and a ministry for every last person amongst us. No matter what we are, no matter where we work and what our strengths and weaknesses are, the Lord has a perfect design for us. And, you know, they were talking about the balloons that they handed out at at the uh, parade and how other people were selling balloons, but they had free balloons. So guess who took the free balloons? Almost everybody. And everybody's walking around carrying a scripture passage, or I don't recall exactly what they put on it, but... You know, here's the gospel parading down the parade by all sorts of people that probably hadn't planned on carrying out the gospel that morning, but they were doing it. And they were just carrying their balloons proudly, I'm sure, especially children. But right there is a scripture verse. And I believe Dave also made mention of wrapping gifts toward Christmas time for free and then having the opportunity sitting in front of a store to say, let me tell you about a gift of all gifts. And it doesn't cost you anything, but it costs your Lord and God everything. And things like that. You know, they were talking about writing on water cups, putting verses on water cups, and then handing it out when great uh, crowds gathered, or whatever the circumstance may be. The Lord can custom fit and custom design and promises to do it. A wonderful ministry for every one of us in our weakness. And so he says, go ye therefore into all the world. Remember at the very beginning of time that when the Lord created Adam and then Eve, he he set them in a garden and he gave them a, a jurisdiction. He didn't give them the whole world. Now, they were supposed to be fruitful and to multiply and and to then emanate on out into the world. But he gave them a garden, a sort of a small space, as it were. And Adam, unfortunately, did not do real well in his little jurisdiction. But the Lord gives us little jurisdictions, little families or assemblies or our small place in school amongst our friends or whatever it may be. He gives each one of us our own little gardens. And when I think of this strong call in Matthew chapter 28 to go ye therefore into all the world, it's almost too big for me, right? I mean, am I supposed to... uh, become a missionary and go to a foreign place and just the magnitude of it all seems to almost overcome us but i really believe that the lord has in mind that we're faithful in that which is least exactly where the lord takes us up and where he saves us and the assembly that we're in and if he desires something a little bit larger you will not be able to hang on to that little garden if you do it for all you're worth he'll pull you right out And put you where you need to be. When the timing is right. I remember sitting around the table. As we're out in California. With Mr. McDonald. He was only in our home maybe once or twice. Out in Colorado. We don't get a lot of people coming through. Or a little bit on the edge of things out there. But 
I can remember him sitting at our table and, and telling us about he had just been on a missions trip. And one of the things that he stated was this, that you wouldn't believe how many individuals are out on the mission field that probably should not be there. And I don't recall exactly what he said. I was young, but you, you, you begin to think things through in your mind. You know, I know of occasions where young people had in mind that they wanted to do a certain job and they were unable to get that job. And, and then they were finished with school and it's almost as though they didn't know what else to do. And so they just said, I'm going to go on a mission somewhere. And they end up somewhere in the world and the maturity is not there and the preparation is not there. But the Lord has for each one of us a very wonderful place. And wherever he saved us, we want to be faithful in that place, do we not? To do whatever it is that the Lord asks of us. And to step by step, we trust by the Lord's grace to begin to learn the word and, and to mature and to grow and to gain a strength that the Lord may be able to use on a little wider platform sometime in the future. I remember Boyd Nicholson, it comes to mind, telling a story about going into a home that he knew quite well. And he was having dinner there and he was talking with a young lady who had always for years said that she wanted to go to a certain place and be a missionary in that place. And she was sort of feeling him out on that end. You know, what does he know about it and and so forth. And she was talking about her desire to go out in the field in that certain place and And he finally, at the end of the conversation, simply said this. He said, I've been in this home many times. And I just have to say very clearly and very straightforwardly this. That when I come to this house, I happen to know that it's your mother that fixes my bedroom and makes everything just right. And I happen to have seen as I've been here that not once have you ever lifted a finger to pick up a plate or to wash a dirty dish. Or to do any of these other things. But you've always just kind of sat there and wanted to talk about certain things. But you haven't taken to task these things that are right at your hands. The simple, supposedly mundane. We don't know what reward's going to be there in the future for those that do that day after day and serve. We know it's going to be great. Because the servant is the one that's the least. But he had to tell her that she wasn't ready. Because she wasn't willing to pick up on the little things and to be faithful right where she was. And the Lord's going to call us, but when he calls us, it'll be so vivid that you will not be able to help. But, I mean, you can't miss it, right? I know that, again, a number of circumstances where, in one case, in our own assembly, a young couple just had an idea that they really wanted to go somewhere, but there was very little preparation and the timing didn't seem to be there and And I'll tell you what, if you really have a desire and you feel like the Lord has laid it on your heart, you can learn the language, can't you? And you can do it quietly and see what the Lord does with that. And you can learn about that country or that place or those peoples and you can do it without sharing it with anybody. And you can with joy labor right where you are and do it year in and year out and year in and year out. And pretty soon the Lord will open a door if it's his desire, such that instead of you going up and beseeching the elders to say, will you send me out? They'll be coming to you out of the blue. And they'll be saying, we feel like the Lord would have this for your life. And then you say, we're ready because we know it's the Lord, right? It's the Lord. 
And so he's the one that calls here in Matthew chapter 28. I guess we better turn back there. But he's the one that says, go ye therefore. And when he calls, there will be no mistake. Look then next. The prominence of the precepts of the Lord. He says, you go in verse 19 and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, or unto the end of the age. Now, this little word for teach in verse 19, and the one that is used at the very beginning of verse 20 are different words. Matthew is the one that tends to use this first word fairly often. He uses it three times. You only find it four times in the New Testament. But notice how it's rendered in another verse, Matthew 27 and 57, it's going to carry a bit of a different connotation. It reads this way, this verse, When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And this is the word, as you know, for discipling, not so much standing in front of someone and attempting to teach, but discipling. It's a, it's a manner of life. And he says, go and make disciples, teach them, yes, but do so in a much deeper way, an instruction. It's an investment of time and an investment of life in that other person, that they too might be disciples of the living God. And so he says, go and disciple. And then he says that they might observe in verse 20, all things whatsoever I have told you. And so there's this second word now for teaching in verse 20, which is the one that we're more used to maybe. Just sharing, instructing in a way that, you know, maybe you've never heard it put quite this way before. But the verbal interchange maybe as opposed to that life investment. But he includes them both, doesn't he? And he says, to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. Now, notice the the ordinance, if we want to put it that way, that that the Lord brings up. Remember, these are succinct little summaries almost that the Lord is giving to his disciples in these final days. Forty days, we realize, but in this time between his crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. And he doesn't necessarily speak about Bible study or about the Lord's Supper or the meetings of the church or some of these things. He knows that they will follow on. But he talks to this specific statement. He says, go ye therefore and make disciples. And what's the next phrase? What he seems to draw out is this idea, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It's this idea of baptism, this instruction toward baptism, this ordinance that the Lord has given, that he draws on here. And he says, you go and make disciples and you baptize them. There's something about baptism that changes things, I believe, in the Christian's life. There's something about baptism that stands you forth now once and for all publicly as a witness and a witnesser for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about baptism that says in your life that you desire to be obedient 
to the Lord right off the bat. And come what may, my faith is in the Lord. And you may be young in the Lord and you may not fully understand every aspect of baptism. You've never done a study on it. And, you know, the, the times that it seems to be sort of pictured in the Old Testament and, and all of its meanings in the New Testament and the meaning of the word and all of these things. The Lord doesn't ask that, does he? But you know from your scripture reading and perhaps from the person that shared the gospel with you, but that this is something that the Lord desires in your life. And you say, I want to honor the Lord and obey him in baptism. In Turkey, there were two men that were saved because of the labors of a missionary there after many years, decades of work. And they were saved many years before this happening. And there were no issues really in their life with their families or with those in surrounding. After a few years, they decided they wanted to get baptized. And the evening that they were baptized, both of their wives fed them ground glass and they passed away that night because they stood up and made a public testimony for the Lord. And that seemed to make all the difference. And their own wives took their lives. When you stand for the Lord, it does make a difference, does it not? And it takes on a certain responsibility. You say before the world, I am yours and I want the world to know it. And from that point on, you really do desire to stand for him. And I think it should be something which occurs almost immediately after you're saved. Look at Acts, right? And, and do your study sometime. Write down those simple question, one word statements. How were they baptized? And when? And where? And those kinds, kinds of things. And pretty soon you find out, boy, they were saved and they were baptized, weren't they? And probably occasionally you might have to rebaptize someone because maybe they really weren't saved or you might have a wet unbeliever once in a while. But in most cases, the person starts right out and they say, Lord, I desire to follow you in obedience. And the Lord says, you go baptize them. And there is one thing that I'm thankful for as a testimony almost in all the churches in the world. And in spite of how they may practice it, in spite of at what age they may do it, you still tend to find this statement that they say that they baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit or of the Holy Ghost. And that's at least a testimony, isn't it? That they're being baptized for the Lord himself. And so this is what he seems to draw out in this case, this idea of baptism and its critical importance and what a privilege it is to stand forth in baptism look at this next statement now in verse 20 this promise of his presence at the end teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you he says and lo i am with you always even unto the end of the age or unto the end of the world the tremendous promise of the presence of the lord in every circumstance if we're here at Yosemite, if we're chattering our teeth and knees when we're sharing the gospel, when we're in the midst of a test when we're young and we feel like everything just fled from our mind that we've been studying, whatever it is, we know the Lord's there. And He's there to help in every circumstance. And He never leaves. It's in perpetuity. We know He's going to be there all the days, but there's never even a moment of time when the Lord is not there. And if you feel like the world is pressing in around you, there's one person who's always closer 
And that's the Lord himself because we live at the very foot of the throne of God and we live engulfed in the presence of the Lord himself. And he says, lo, I am with you always. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 19, a king by the name of Hezekiah and surrounding him and his city are all these Assyrians. And they send him a letter basically telling him what they're going to do to them when they take them over. And he takes this letter and he spreads it out before the Lord. And he says, Lord, do you hear what they're saying? Do you see what they're saying? Do you, do you take note of it? But in his prayer, he says, thou art the God that made the heavens and the earth. Well, now there's a statement. There's a recognition. And he knew, did Hezekiah, that God was there. And he could trust. In the Lord, couldn't he? And amazing what the Lord did for him that day. The peace that passes all understanding. He could commit it unto the Lord. And if Hezekiah was the one that writes Psalm 121, he says, I will lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence does my help come? Well, the Lord isn't necessarily in the hills, is he? The enemy was in the hills and he lifts his eyes up to the hills and he sees the Assyrians just covering him like the grasshoppers. But he says, where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And I love how in that little book, kind of right before we get to the poetical books where Nehemiah is coming before Artaxerxes and he he always calls him these high names when he steps into his presence. And when he verbally speaks to Artaxerxes, he says, O king. And he uses these very formal words. But when he then turns and bows in prayer to the Lord, he says, this man, he says, just a man. He may be a king on a throne, but he's just an ordinary man. And you see an idea of the magnitude of God who is above everything, maker of heaven and earth, invested with all power. And it's this one that is with us all the way into the ages. The Lord working with them. The Lord's intrinsic nature is to serve, isn't it? And when he framed the universes, as the framer of the universes, he then came into it and he bore a carpenter's apron and he picked up a carpenter's hammer and he went about ministering and serving And we know the Lord's going to be serving. And so if you're going to be with him too, you'll have to be serving as well. I suppose in the final analysis, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Lord really doesn't need us for too much, does he? And that's an understatement. It's not like the hosts of heaven were all busy and he had to go look for some cheap foreign labor. So he went into the world and said, boy, here we got a bunch of good people, right? It's like a sweatshop. You had all these people out there. I mean, we aren't much, but he had to go find us because he needed a lot of work done. And it isn't like that, is it? It has to do with relationship. It has to do with this, that the Lord knows that he is greatest as he that serves. And he is serving and he wants to be with you. And he wants to share himself with you. Remember how this book opens up, this gospel opens up, because it's going to conclude in in such a beautiful manner here. It opens up with, yes, the genealogies, but then there's this angel that comes and, and makes this announcement of what? The coming of the king. 
But the word that's used is Emmanuel. And the writer takes the time to actually translate that for us. And he says, this one, you're going to call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from your sins. You'll call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us, right? And then we get to the end of the book. And in beautiful literature, as it rounds itself out, we then get the promise from God himself and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, lo, I with you am. And we're told sometimes by these scholars that know their New Testament very well that the actual order of the words is that, that it's a statement of the great I am. And as it were, the I is here and the with you is in the middle and the M is on the other side as though he's surrounding us even in the presence of the verbiage here. And God himself makes this promise that he is with us all the days unto the very end. Perpetually, he's with us. A very present help in time of trouble. And then look at the last word. And we can add our own hearty amen to that too, can't we? Amen. The Lord is with us. And so we just have a couple of minutes here, about five minutes. But the Lord has begun to share with us in this one passage at the end of Matthew that he's going to be with us. He's going to call us, yes, in all of our weakness and says, go forth, teach, make disciples, teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Don't leave one thing out because everything is righteous and good and true altogether. And oh, what a joy it is to be able to at least say, Lord, we don't want to doubt. We don't want to hesitate. We want to take you at your word and be obedient. And no matter where you have us, we're ready to do your beck and your call. And so we have this commission given by the Lord, this commission of adoration that he's central. And this commission of commitment, Lord, we long to be faithful unto thyself. Now, let's go to Mark, because I would at least like to read it as we have a little bit of context, having been in Matthew now. And Mark is a, is a tremendous commission. I just love the brevity of what Mark's going to say. It's like he's going to drop a bomb. <clears throat> you know how it is that, I mean, people use different methods, right? Some individuals in their gospel outreach and their witnessing, they kind of have the feather touch and they have a nice tongue and they're able to say things just the right way. And other people are like hand grenade tossers. You know, they just kind of, they don't really know what to do or what to say, but they've got this explosion and they just throw it in the middle of the whole situation and things happen. And some people don't really know what to do and they're way back in the middle ages and they still send up smoke signals, you know, just kind of these little puffs going on. And I don't know what your methods are, but Mark's are very bombastic. I mean, he gets your attention and he's going to be very clear, very succinct. Listen to what he says. This is a short chapter, so we'll just go ahead and read it, and then we'll finish. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. You might say to yourself, they walked forth that day, bathed in the light, of the rising of two sons. 
And it says in verse 3 that they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was mega, it was, it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any, for they were afraid. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward he appeared unto the eleven, as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them, which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, to every creature, and here's the passage that we're going to be taking up specifically. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. And again, we say, Amen, with the writer. So I would just encourage you as you have time to enjoy reading progressively through these last final chapters of the Gospels in that first chapter in Acts. You'll enjoy doing it one after another. And I know the Lord will bless that time. Gary, Dave.